worship up to this point? Are you ready for the Word of God? We turn to Acts chapter 21. And I will have a word of prayer, and then I will kind of re- uh, recapitulate a little bit of what we went over last week as an introduction into our sermon today. Let's bow our heads. Gracious God, as we open your holy word, help us to study to show ourselves approved. We really need uh, an anointing of the Holy Spirit to truly discern what's going on in Scripture, to maybe read between the lines if need be, to compare Scripture with Scripture. And we really need help today, Lord, to, to enter into what the Holy Spirit was trying to do through the Apostle Paul. Bless us as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we were, um, Paul was traveling. He'd been in Ephesus for three years, and he'd been traveling to different places. And then he had an opportunity to gather the, the leaders together in Ephesus and give them some counsel. Those of you that were here last week will probably remember that. And when we go to chapter 20, there's a passage there that I want to specially bring to your attention as relevant to what we're going to speak about today. He says in chapter 20, as he's speaking to these elders from Ephesus in verse 22, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I want you to notice these Spirit phrases and emphasis. Compelled by the Spirit, I am going to where? Now, the final destination is Rome, but now Jerusalem is the place to be, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, those of you that have been uh, reading the book of Acts know about the, something about the life of the apostle Paul will realize that he was very faithful and very diligent in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is, the good news of the, the life, death, resurrection, ministry in heaven of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that he's going to come back as King of kings and Lord of lords. These key pillars of the faith are included in good news about Jesus Christ. Paul was very faithful in sharing that, right? And he was especially the the apostle to the Gentiles. Not that he didn't preach to Jews. He would often go to synagogues, Jewish synagogues, where the Jews would also hear the gospel too. But his primary role was for a non-Jewish Gentile audience. Now, in chapter 21, as he's making his way to Jerusalem, we find that he's going to get advice. And advice could be the title of this sermon this morning. And I want you to think, is it good advice that he's getting, or is it bad advice? You really have to think carefully this morning. This is not as easy as you might think. Uh, Sometimes it's nice if Scripture would just spell it out and kind of hit us with a two-by-four so we don't miss it, but often it's not that way. In verse, in chapter 21, it says, After we had torn ourselves away from them, 
we put out to sea, we sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes, from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. And after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south, this is not a Caribbean cruise, by the way. It wasn't that quite that way on the, the high seas of those days. And passing to the south, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. So these different places that he's visiting, if he gets an opportunity, they gathered the believers there, and um, he probably gives them a lot of wise counsel. Finding the disciples there in verse 4, we stayed with them seven days, and through the Spirit, they urged Paul to go or not to go. Not to go to Jerusalem. So where it gets tricky is the Holy Spirit is, is inspiring and, and commissioning Paul and urging him to go to Jerusalem. That comes through very clear in these passages. And on the other hand, you've got people that, believers that love Paul and have his best interests at heart who are saying, don't go. And apparently both under the unction of the Holy Spirit. That's where it gets a little tricky. So, but when our time was up, we left, we continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. And after saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued on our voyage from Ty, landed at Ptolemus, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them a few days. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip. Any of you can remember Philip? from what we've studied earlier in the book of Acts, called here an evangelist doing the work of evangelism for many, many years, one of the seven, the seven who? Seven deacons. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. You'll find quite often in Scripture uh, an emphasis being laid on women and, of course, men prophesying. That's not unusual. And, of course, in the book of Joel, it says in the last days, your sons and your daughters shall, shall prophesy. And usually prophecy is not foretelling the future. It's usually telling the audience uh, what God wants communicated to them for the present. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus, we've also met him before in the book of Acts, came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. Now, this would have been like a sash around Paul's waist, a piece of cloth. And if there was money, they would wrap, wrap that in the sash, and they would wrap it, wrap it, wrap it around the body, and that would be the belt. It's interesting that um, it doesn't say why these four female prophets didn't speak to, to Paul. If, if they did, it's not recorded. Agabus comes in, and he is the one that God uses. So he takes this sash or this belt from Paul, and he ties himself up, it says there in the Scripture in verse 11, and then his commentary, the Holy Spirit says, there it is again, in this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So Paul knows 
that he is being urged by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. One of the main reasons that he's going to Jerusalem is to deliver an offering. And yet that's not even mentioned here. This was a huge thing in Paul's life. It really shows me how careful we have to be with Scripture. Uh, often in a book like Acts, Luke is compressing time and information into just a few words. So it's so important to compare Scripture with Scripture. It's not until chapter 24 that the offering is mentioned. And yet here he is, one of the main, probably the main reason why he's going to Jerusalem. It's not the only reason, but it's a very big reason why he's going to Jerusalem. And it was Agabus, by the way, who had predicted famine in Jerusalem earlier in the book of Acts. So whether there's a famine, whether there's economic deprivation for the believers there, the, the Jews, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem were obviously hurting, and the Gentiles had been giving offerings for years, and now it's about to be delivered. So, Agabus says, in this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, Luke, include him, when we, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? You know, sometimes, most times, Paul gets a bad rap, even amongst Christians. He's the one who's, uh, if, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, he's the one that seems to be minimizing the importance of the law. Lots of positive things in his writings. In fact, I was, had a lady that was witnessing I was witnessing to her. She was, I think, witnessing to me, too. And uh, she says, I don't like Paul. Quickly, the conversation turned. Uh, so I brought John in instead of Paul. Uh, it's always good to have options. And we have plenty of them in the New Testament. It's not down to one writer or, or one person. But, uh, and I never got into why she doesn't like Paul, but it's a very common thing that I hear amongst Christians. They have a really hard time relating to Paul. You're seeing a little bit of his heart here when he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Could you say that about yourself? Yes? No? Not sure? When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. What was the Lord's will here? That's one of the important questions. And it seems very clear to me that it was the Lord's will for him to go to Jerusalem. But there were some things going to happen in Jerusalem that are definitely not the Lord's will. But everyone doesn't quite see it that way. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Mason. Aha, my name is in Scripture with, a, with an N thrown in. Take the N out and you've got Mason there, so I know where my name comes from now. Where we were to stay, he was a man from Cyprus and one of the early 
disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. And in my notes, I put, how warm? How warm? Because there's a real tension here. And you have to think and dig a little bit to understand that, that kind of tension. Obviously, if Paul presented the offering, which I believe he did right at the beginning, which of the brethren doesn't like money? I mean, we talk a lot about money in the Seventh-day Adventist church, don't we? So this was a generous offering. And yet, even with this offering, I feel, th think that there were some that were not as warm as they could have been. Sometimes when we turn the tap on, it can be tepid, it can be a little bit warmer, and it can be boiling hot. And I think on the part of some of them, it was a little tepid. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. This is the half-brother of Jesus, the one who wrote the book of James in the New Testament, and all the elders were present. Now, this would have been a sizable group because we're going to see that there were a lot of Jewish believers in Jerusalem. The gospel was not going just to the Gentiles. Now, with the Gentiles, it was going leaps and bounds. But they still were having tremendous success in Jerusalem with many of these Pharisees that had opposed Jesus actually coming to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's where the tension is. The Jewish-Gentile tension. It's probably one of the biggest issues in the New Testament. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Don't you get excited when you hear about how someone has come to the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't care how many times I hear it from different people, I always get excited. There's something absolutely thrilling when God can take people who are dead in sin or dead in religion, as we would have with the Jewish people, and bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, the brother is nice, a little bit of warmth there. You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. I want you to be, be very clear here that we're talking about Jewish customs. We are not talking about things like the Ten Commandments. We certainly aren't talking about things like the Sabbath. In fact, this is an indirect way to show the importance of the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath in this way, that if the Jews would get so upset with Paul because of his minimizing some of our customs, what would they ever have done if Paul had minimized the Ten Commandments? As it is, they're ready to rip his head off over customs. What would they have done if ever he would have spoken against God's moral law? And yes, Paul does have a lot of things to say which could be interpreted as negative, concerning the law of God. 
but what he believes is the law is holy, just, and good. The problem was never the law with Paul, because the law is a God-given gift. And when God gives his gifts, they are good gifts, because they're God's gifts, obviously. Now, I know, I know a lot of Christians don't see it that way, and that's why it's important to, to read the whole Bible and see the importance of God's holy law in the whole of Scripture. And why is he negative? Because people were taking that holy law and misapplying it. That's when he dug his heels in. So, yes, there are many Christians out there who look on Paul as being negative on the law. No, he is negative concerning people who misuse the law. The law was given to bring us to Christ. And the Holy Spirit working through the law can do that in an incredible way. So the law is good if it's used for the God-given purposes that God originally intended. Anyway, they, verse 21, they've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? There's the rub. That's the important question. What shall we do? Paul, you're a problem. You're an enigma. It's best if the offering came to Jerusalem without Paul accompanying it. Then there'd be no problem. We'd gladly take the money We'd throw our arms around the brethren there, and all would be fine. But everybody's going to know, Paul, that you are in town. And those of you that have been following these sermons through the book of Acts, you know that when he was working for the Gentiles in Asia, that Jews there in Asia, Jews that were dispersed throughout the world, took Paul on and tried a number of times to really kill him. Well, guess what? They're in town. This is a big time. Pentecost, Passover, big feast times. Many, many hundreds of thousands of Jews in town. And the problem is Paul is there as well. The brethren know this is a problem, so they say, what shall we do? They're perplexed. They will certainly hear that you've come, so do what we tell you. So here's the advice. Good or bad, there are four men with us who have made a vow. Now, can you remember when we were in chapter 18, I mentioned Paul getting a haircut? So if I say it that way, it's probably something you're going to remember because it's not what you'd normally associate the Apostle Paul with. And he was taking a vow, probably based on numbers chapter 6. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to, to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book in the Old Testament, chapter 6 there. And when we were in chapter 18 of Acts, I says, well, let's skip this little verse in chapter 18. I think it's 18, 18 of Acts, and let's deal with it later. So now is the later when we're going to deal with it. The Lord said to Moses in Numbers 6, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, 
He must abstain from wine, another fermented drink, must not drink vinegar made from wine or from other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. Oh, I like raisins in my cereals, don't you? As long as he is a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During the entire period of his vow of separation, no razor may be used on his head. He must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let the hair of his head grow long, and so on. So you can read chapter 6. You can read also chapter 30, where it makes a distinction between male vows and female vows. And you can have some good bedtime reading there. Now, back to this vow. Four Jewish Christians are taking part in probably, probably a temporary Nazarite vow. Take these men, the advice, join in their purification rites and pay their expenses. Wow, Paul's already given a bunch of money. Now they're expecting him to dig deep into his pocket. This would be quite expensive. When it says pay their expenses, in my study Bible it says he would be sponsoring these men, number one, paying part or all the expenses of the sacrificial victims, such as pigeons and lambs. Two, going to the temple to notify the priest when the days of purification would be fulfilled, so the priest would be prepared to sacrifice their offerings, and so on. So this was quite a, quite a commitment on the part of Paul. The question that I have as I read this material is, is this good advice? Because it's going to put Paul surrounded with these Jews from not so much the problem with, with, with Jerusalem Jews, but these Jews from other parts where he's, he's had skirmishes with them when they've literally left him for dead. They're also going to be in the temple. Well, Paul accepts the advice. And whoa, are there going to be some consequences for doing this? Big consequences. But let's finish this section. Everyone will know there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law, which is, as far as I'm concerned, never an issue for Paul. To the Jew, he was a Jew. To the Gentile, he was a Gentile. As for the Gentile believers, well, then we go back to Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. Nothing changes there. They just must remember to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. And then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So day one, no problem. Day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. Probably by the, the, sixth, the sixth day, getting ready for the seventh and final day when the hair would be cut off. And don't tell us, Lorna, what they did because you already know. She's heard version one of this sermon already. What did they do with that hair? Did they gather it together to make wigs for ladies in Hollywood? Or did they burn it on the altar? This is very strange language for us, isn't it? 
unless we're steeped in the Old Testament and Jewish customs, we really wouldn't understand the significance of a lot of these things. So Paul participates. He's there in the temple. He's with these men. They're doing their purification rites. Verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd, and they seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, hey, help! There's that heretic Paul! And you better believe that not just in the temple, because they're looking at Paul as defiling the temple now, but through the whole city, there was a tr tremendous negative reaction. Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people, our law, and this place, the temple. And besides, that's the first accusation, and besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. What do you think was the punishment for defiling the temple? Death, with no hesitation. And the Romans apparently allowed the Jews to kill them on the spot if that happened. In fact, we know, because archaeologists have dug these things out of the ground, that there were signs put up. So there may have been a wall with the sign on it so everybody could see it. The Gentiles were expected to, to be and to stay in the outer court. They better hadn't go close to the inner court of the temple. They're outside. They're, yes, they're there on the periphery, and that's where they should stay. That was very strong in Jewish thinking. And the sign would say that if any non-Jew passed this point, they would be executed pain of death. So it was very clear to everybody. Now, I always wonder what happens if you can't read. But I guess everybody was very, very clear what the rules and the regulations were. And it says there in parentheses, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area, which, of course, Paul is not going to do something as crazy as that. The whole city was aroused. The people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. That's an interesting phrase, the gates were shut. Is this talking about the Jewish rejection of the gospel? Over and over and over again in the book of Acts, we have had a problem with the Jews and the good news of Jesus Christ. Yes, many thousands had come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and they were very zealous to keep the Jewish customs. They obviously did not really understand that the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile had been broken down by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. When did they understand? When did the penny drop? Well, maybe for some not until A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. 
while they were trying to kill him. What do you think? Was this good advice or not? Huh? Is your mind made up yet? Good advice or not? Did the Jewish leaders make a mistake here? Did Paul make a mistake to go along with this advice? News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers, ran down to the crowd, and when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up, arrested him, and ordered him to be bound. So he's been assaulted, he's now been arrested, good advice or not, with two chains. And then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. And when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. Does it remind you of anything? Does it remind you what they did to Jesus? What they did to Stephen? And remember, Paul was part of what they did to Stephen. In, um, in my reading of these passages, I came across some very interesting material. This author says that it's hard to resist the conclusion that Luke sees a, parable, a par parallel between Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, which of course is prominent in the Gospel of Luke, the first volume, and Paul's journey to Jerusalem, which he describes in the book of Acts, the second volume. Like Jesus, number one, Paul traveled to Jerusalem with a group of his disciples. Like Jesus, he was opposed to hostile Jews who plotted against his life. Three, like Jesus, he made or received three successive predictions of his passion or sufferings, including his handing over to the Gentiles. Four, like Jesus, he declared his readiness to lay down his life. Five, like Jesus, he was determined to complete his ministry and not be deflected from it. And six, like Jesus, he expressed his abandonment to the will of God. So parallels with Jesus, parallels not just with his journey, but also with his sufferings. Luke also seems to be drawing a deliberate parallel between the sufferings, the passion of Christ, and the sufferings of the Apostle Paul. Although, of course, Paul's sufferings were not redemptive like Christ, nevertheless, number one, Jesus and Paul, one, were rejected by their own people, arrested without cause, and imprisoned. Two, were unjustly accused, and willfully misrepresented by false witnesses. Three were slapped in the face in court. Four were the hapless victims of secret Jewish plots. Five heard the terrifying noise of the frenzied mob screaming away with him. And six were subjected to a series of five trials. Jesus by Annas, the Sanhedrin, King Herod Antipas, and twice by Pilate, Paul by the crowd, the Sanhedrin, King Herod Agrippa II, and by the two procurators, Felix and Festus. Are you beginning to see Luke was more than a historian? 
he was a theologian. He's making parallels between Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, right at the beginning, he's writing to Theophilus, and he's wanting to show that this Christianity, and not just the history of Christianity, but Christianity, Christianity is a religion, uh, 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 correct belief system. It was looked on early on as a sect of Judaism, but later it was looked on as a cult and a heresy. So Luke wants to make it really clear to whoever reads the book of Luke and the book of Acts that this is a legitimate belief system that you can trust and believe in it. You know, as I was uh, reading, I came across some excellent material, as I said earlier, and the idea came across, and I think it was very reasonable, hey, Paul is making concessions, James is making concessions, there needs to be harmony in the church. And as I read that, I thought, yeah, makes sense. But then I read something in a book called Acts of the Apostles by Ellen White. And here I have to share what she says. Because she gives a different slant than anything else that I've read on this. And I'm just going to jump around a little bit, but I think you'll get the drift of what she's saying here. It was apparent to Paul and his companions when they arrived in Jerusalem and even among those before they now, they now stood were some who were unable, now this is the Jewish leadership, were unable to appreciate the spirit of brotherly love that had prompted the gifts. So when the gift is given, some of course would be beaming from ear to ear, and some would be saying, hmm, I'm not sure about this. She also talks about in the earlier years of the gospel work among the Gentiles, some of the leading brethren at Jerusalem clinging to former prejudices and habits of thought had not cooperated heartily with Paul and his associates. If we do not cooperate heartily, then we make someone's work harder. We put them under suspicion. False reports will come, ab come about those individuals, and instead of defending them, which is what we should do if, it's an, if a ministry is anointed by the Holy Spirit, we start questioning them, putting them possibly in a bad light. Paul, she says, he picked up on this lack of sympathy, but he had a clean conscience, and he knew that he had done things from a pure motive, and he was very comfortable with this offering that had been brought. He saw it as a, not just something to help the Jewish brethren, but as a symbolic gesture to show that Jews and Gentiles need to be one in Christ. She says, the men who, while numbered among those who were in charge of the work at Jerusalem, had urged that arbitrary measures of control be adopted, saw Paul's ministry in a new light. So from Jerusalem, they're trying to control the whole of the work. Well, leaders in Jerusalem were clueless about how to reach Gentiles. 
Do we have any information that the leaders in Jerusalem knew how to work, how to reach the Gentile community? No, it's all, all done through Paul and the people that worked through them. And yet they tried to control things from Jerusalem as much as they were able. But now light is coming when they heard Paul's story. They were convinced that their own course had been wrong, that they had been held in bondage by Jewish customs and traditions, and that the work of the gospel had been greatly hindered by their failure to recognize that the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile had been broken down by the death of Christ. This was the golden opportunity for all the leading brethren to confess, frankly, that God had wrought through Paul, and that at times they had erred in permitting the reports of his enemies to arouse their jealousy and prejudice. But instead of uniting in an effort to do justice to the one who had been injured, they gave him counsel which showed that they still cherished a feeling that Paul should be held largely responsible for the existing Jewish prejudice. They did not stand nobly in his defense, endeavoring to show the disaffected ones where they were wrong, but sought to effect a compromise by counseling him to pursue a course which, in their opinion, would remove all cause for misapprehension. Good advice or bad advice? Bad advice, if I understand her correctly. God was not asking the Jewish leaders to take charge like this. And Paul himself was not authorized by God to concede as much as they asked. And yet God worked no miracle to change this situation. He allowed it to play out, yes. He raised up Roman soldiers to save the life of Paul. And by the way, that is one of the themes of Luke, Jewish opposition and Roman help that often comes in the book of Acts. And she says here that um, these Jewish leaders were very wrong and did something less than good in the way that they dealt with Paul here. I want to wrap up with this final statement. Do you remember Jesus when he taught with the Jewish religious leaders of his day? Some of his, his very strongest statements were for these people. First, he treated them somewhat gently, but as they became more and more stubborn in their prejudice, then Jesus became more and more explicit the dangers of what these leaders uh, were leading to. So she says here, the Savior's words of reproof to the men of Nazareth applied in the case of Paul, not only to the unbelieving Jews, but to his own brethren in the faith. Had the leaders in the church fully surrendered their feeling of bitterness towards the apostle and accepted him as one specially called of God to bear the gospel to the Gentiles, the Lord would have spared him to them. God had not ordained that Paul's labors should so soon end, but he did not work a miracle to counteract the train of circumstances to which the course of the leaders in the church of Jerusalem had given rise. Totally, 
totally different perspective than most of the commentaries that you will read on this passage. Aren't you glad? Isn't this a very different way of looking at the importance of the spirit of prophecy? You have, an in, you have insights, whether you accept them or not is, is, up, is between you and God, but you have, you have gifts, tools in the Seventh-day Adventist church that are really fabulous. Uh, today, when I was, or this week, when I was told you I met this lady that, that I was witnessing to, um, I made sure she left with great controversy in Desire of Ages. And I thought, yeah, it's a lot of material. And I told her it was a lot of material, but I said, this one will help you with Jesus, and this one will help you to understand history and the truth, the conflict between truth, good and evil uh, throughout human history, and also bringing it into the present and also taking it into the future. We take this, this literature for granted, but no, we should, we should slow down and we should look at a passage like this and think, wow, there is way more to what's going on in Scripture than even appears on the surface. There's a depth. You've got to read between the lines. You've got to compare Scripture with Scripture, and if need be, go to a book like uh, Acts of the Apostles by Ellen White to get these other quite different insights. It shows me the importance, uh, brethren, of not trying to control the work of God. I mean, a leader has to be a leader, and a leader has to lead, but if God is raising someone up with unique gifts like the Apostle Paul and giving him a unique ministry that most of us wouldn't have a clue how to do it, how dare we try and control that ourselves and give advice that leads to this man being assaulted, arrested, and if those Romans hadn't been there, literally torn to pieces. Now, God can still get him to Rome, but it seems that we're going to plan B with him being arrested by the Romans and going to Rome that way. And while he's in Rome, by the way, he will do a great ministry. God is not finished with this man yet. Shows us also, be very, very careful with your pastors. Can't, can't let that get away. They may not do things the way that you like. They may not say or do things the way that you think it should be done but let God be God. And if you think of our world today, when you think of the global work of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and, and the varied ways that work is being done, um, what, whether it be through men, women, children, different cultures that are there, I mean, it, it's pretty complex if, if one person or one group of people is trying to control the whole things will uh, slow down, certainly, and not move as fast as God wants it to move as, as far as under the unction of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure the people who gave Paul advice not to go to Jerusalem had his best interests at heart. They loved Paul. They wanted the best for him. And I'm sure the brethren in Jerusalem, even though I think some of them had very mixed feelings about Paul, um, still wanted to do the best in the situation as they knew how. How important it is that we get on our knees, that we make sure that what we're saying and what we're doing is truly of the Holy Spirit and not just our own prejudices and our own preferences. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you again for what you have done through people like Paul and many other godly people in the early Christian church.
Lord, we look for you doing great things through us here at Anderson, through the Anderson Church family, or whatever church family is represented today. Help us to work together to encourage, to support one another, not to put one another down. And Lord, maybe sometimes ministry will be done in a way that we don't really understand and we don't really agree with. And yet, maybe we need to get down on our knees, spend time with you, and not interfere in a way that's going to hurt your work instead of helping your work. We thank you and praise you for Jesus. May this gospel of the kingdom go throughout the whole world soon so that Jesus will come back. In his name we pray. Amen.